Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are mighty and powerful. Lord, you transform lives. You bring us to repentance. You sanctify us by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, this morning we call on you. We are expectant. We desire for your Spirit to be present. And Lord Jesus, we open our hearts up to you. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will do your work in our lives, that we will be transformed by your power, that we will be your people to do your work. Lord, I pray that you will use me as your vessel. Lord, I pray that your spirit will flow through me, that I will be faithful to your word and your promises. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 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 In 1805, Napoleon was determined to invade the island of Great Britain. He had one problem. It was called the British Navy. So what he did is he formed an alliance with Spain. He got the Spanish Armada to join his French fleet, and together they had more ships, more guns, and more people than the British Navy. They were to meet the British Navy in the famous Battle of Trafalgar on October 21st of 1805. As the ships were coming together the day before, Lord Nelson pulled his officers together. He said, even though the French and the Spanish had more ships and more guns and more people. The one thing they didn't have was the greatest admiral on the face of the earth. Lord Nelson brought his officers together and he gave them his strategy. Instead of lining up parallel where they would do broadsides back and forth, which was the strategy of the day, Lord Nelson came up with a strategy that they would divide into two columns and they would literally go in and they would split the Spanish and the French ships into three groups and then surround them. His officers looked at him like he was crazy and they said, why would you take such risk? And he looked back at them and he said, desperate affairs require desperate measures. There have been times in the history of the church in America where the church has had its back against the wall and it has echoed those exact same words. Desperate affairs require desperate measures. You see, in those times, the church has decided to take the words out of 2 Chronicles 7.14 to heart. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon builds the temple. He had finished, builds the temple. The people gather together. And we read that the fire of God comes down on the temple and fills the temple with smoke to the point that nobody can enter into the temple. They, were, they have seen and witnessed the presence and the power of the living God. And then in verse 14, God gives these words to Solomon. He gives him his, this promise, which we've heard many times. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. That is a promise that God has given to us 3,000 years ago, and at different times the church has taken that promise to heart, and they've seen God deliver on that promise. One of the times 
was back in the 1790s. Now, often in our history of America, we have this perception that America was just the, the Christian bed of virtue from the time of its founding on and just slowly has slipped into decadence. But that's not true. The truth of it is, is that from the time of the American Revolution through the 1780s and the 1790s, we were slipping into a cesspool of immorality. Part of it was deism was alive and well. Deism believes there's no personal God. You basically can do whatever you want to do. We were strongly being influenced by the French culture at this time in the 1780s. The French, as they were slipping into their French Revolution, was an absolute cesspool of anti-God uh, anti belief and behavior. In fact, in the French Revolution, they crowned the prostitute the age of reason right in the center of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. This was the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, the age where you didn't need God. Immorality in America through the 1780s into the 1790s was unbelievable. Drunkenness was rampant. We had 4 million people in the United States at this time. Over 300,000, almost 10%, were confirmed drunkards. Liquor, unlike water, was considered to be safe and healthy. It was drank 24 hours a day by all ages, all societies, even children were given liquor. Profanity was commonplace, and on many college campuses, they had what they called the filthy speech clubs. Prostitution was legal behavior, it was rampant, and so therefore, so was illegitimacy and sexually transmitted diseases. It was so bad that women were afraid to go out at night in fear of assault. Bank robberies were a common occurrence. This is our nation in the 1780s and the 1790s. In the colleges, quote unquote, the Christian colleges of Harvard, they took a poll and there was not one Christian identified in the entire campus. In Princeton, they identified two believers in the student body. They had a riot, they burned down Nassau Hall, they went into the Presbyterian Church, they took out all the Bibles, and they had a bonfire burning the Bibles in the campus square. In Williams College, they held a mock communion, mocking Jesus Christ. The Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s that they had to meet in secret and write their minutes in code for fear of being found out. This was our nation in the 1790s. As you go further west into the western frontier, it went from bad to worse. Ken Kentucky and Tennessee were, were absolute gutters. Um, they considered Kentucky and Tennessee to be the modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. There had not been one court of law in Kentucky in five years. Not one court. There was no law enforcement. There was no judges. There was no court. So if you were a criminal on the East Coast, a fugitive, all you had to do was get across the Appalachians into Kentucky and you were absolutely safe. So that tells you what it was like in Kentucky. Logan County, which was right on the Kentucky-Tennessee border, became known as Rogue's Harbor. It was absolute, unadulterated lawlessness. The people of Kentucky rose up as vigilantes and they lost. Nobody, no law enforcement dared to go into Kentucky in the 1790s. 
It made the quote-unquote Wild West 70 years later look like the tame West compared to what was going on in these two states. The churches were in absolute serious decline. The Methodists were losing 4,000 members a year. The Baptists called it their most wintry season. The Presbyterians in their General Assembly condemned the gross immorality of the country. Reverend Sam Shepard of the Congregational Church of Massachusetts said in 16 years he had not taken one new member into fellowship. Sam Provost of the Episcopal Church of New York quit. He said, it's been so long since I confirmed anybody that I have no job left, and he went and took other employment. And the Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, and he said, you know, the church is too far gone to ever be redeemed again. And Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense, said, quote, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years, end quote. So why do we have a picture of America as a Christian nation? Where do we get that from? How did the situation change? Well, it changed through a concentrated effort of unified, extraordinary prayer in the late 1790s. As Lord Nelson said, desperate affairs require desperate measures. Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758 and was very instrumental in the First Great Awakening, he wrote a book before he died, and this is the title of the book. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth according to scriptural promises and prophecies. That's the title. That's not the book. That is the title. So you can look it up on Amazon if you got it. There's three things, though. The reason I read that entire title to you is that there's three things in the title that I believe are instrumental in bringing about revival. The first is explicit agreement and visible union of God's people. If you want a revival, the first thing is you need all of God's people across all denominations, all Christian leaders, to be gathered together praying specifically for revival. Two, it needs to be extraordinary prayer. It can't be just the typical prayer you do before meals or before a message. It has to be focused prayer for revival. And those are the critical components of any revival. So Isaac Baptus, who was a Baptist minister in New England, he got a hold of this book in 1794, and he was moved by it. And so he sent a letter to all the Christian denominations of every leader throughout the entire New England. And fortunately, the leaders responded. Revival, prayer for revival was adopted by the Presbyterians in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It was adopted by the Methodists, by Bishop Asbury. It was adopted by the Baptists and the Congregationalists. And by 1794, 1795, the whole New England was interlaced across denominations, across churches, by Christian leaders for 
praying at least once a month that God would bring revival to turn the tide. Desperate measures, desperate affairs require desperate measures. Their backs were against the wall. They didn't know what else to do. If God didn't come, the nation was ruined. In 1796, revival broke. It first broke in Connecticut, it went to Massachusetts, it then went further up through New England, and then it came back down through New England and swept through Philadelphia. They said that every week, thousands of people were being converted. The young people who had nothing to do about God, who could care less about God, They'd be in the tavern drinking, and all of a sudden they'd be so convicted by the Spirit of God, they would put down their drink and they would leave, and they would seek the nearest church or spiritual council. Same thing would happen on the dance floors. The Spirit of God was alive. The Spirit of God was moving. But the greatest impact of this revival occurred in our frontier. It's also why it's called the Campfire Revival. There was a Scottish-Irish Presbyterian minister by the name of James McGrady. Now, James McGrady is most famous because he was so ugly that people would come to hear him speak. So I looked him up, and I saw a picture of him, and I thought, you know what? He's no more uglier than me. <laughs> but that's what they said. He was so ugly that people would come to hear him speak. Well, he was a pastor in Orange County, North Carolina, for six years. And he got the people of North Carolina, several hundred people in North Carolina, to sign the North Carolina Covenant. It was a full-page document, so I'm not going to bore you with all the words of the document, but it was a full page of what they were signing. Several hundred people signed it, and they committed that they would pray specifically for Logan County, Rogues Harbor, in Kentucky. They would pray every third Saturday of the month, fast and pray, until either revival came or they died. Now that's commitment, my friends. Well, after they signed the covenant, Reverend McGrady left his church in North Carolina because he said, I want to be in Logan County when God brings revival. So he moved to Logan County, Rogues Harbor, the cesspool of immorality and lawlessness right into the heart of it. And he took three small Presbyterian churches. Now, I want you to hear that word, Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian, okay? So put that in your mind. These are Reformed Presbyterians as we talk about this revival. He took three churches, Muddy River, probably not as good as the name as Freshwater, <laughs> Muddy River, Red River, and Gasper River. And he got them to sign a covenant also. They signed a covenant that on the third Saturday of every month, similar to the North Carolina covenant, they would fast and pray for their county, Logan Harbor, and then every Saturday night and every Sunday morning, they would pray for 30 minutes on Saturday night and 30 minutes on Sunday morning for James McGrady and his preaching and their churches. And they, did, they signed that in 1796. James McGrady went on to say in 1798, he said, for the most part it was weeping and mourning with the people of God. Lawlessness prevailed everywhere. So they go through 1798, and then in July of 1799, in one of his churches, the Red River Church, all of a sudden the dam burst a little bit. 
And all of a sudden, during this service, the Spirit of God shows up, and dozens of people are fall on their face, and they're slain by the Spirit, and then they come up praising and worshiping God. But that was it. That's all that happened in 1799. And then it got quiet again. Until we get to June of, of 1800. In June of 1800, the dam burst. In his Red River Church, he said as they, were, as they were worshiping and praising God, all of a sudden the Spirit of God came. And he could see the wave coming across the congregation as people just fell over, mourning and crying and repenting. And then they would get up praising God and, and just filled with joy of Christ's love. And James McGrady wrote, quote, a mighty effusion of God's Spirit came upon the people, and the floor was soon covered with the slain, and their screams for mercy pierced the heavens. My friends, these are Reformed Presbyterians. All right? This is 100 years before Azusa Street. There's no Assemblies of God. There's no charismatic movement. These are Reformed Presbyterians. But you know what? Theology doesn't matter when God comes. The summer of 1800 was the Great Kentucky Revival, as it became known. God's Spirit went from church to church. Next week at the Beach Street Church, they saw over 500 conversions and 125 new members. The following week in the Beach Meeting House, two Methodist pastors joined McGrady. They were by John and William McKee, and together they were preaching out of Acts 11:15. And they said before them, they saw hundreds fall before them, pleading for mercy, repenting, and then getting up and praising God for what he had done in their lives. August of 1800, the gas, in the Gasper River Church, 8,000 people from 100 miles away came to this meeting. Now, keep in mind that Lexington, Kentucky, was the largest city west of the Appalachians. It only had 2,000 people. 8,000 people show up at the Gasper River Church. And they say that the Gasper River Revival was the turning point that utterly converted Logan County. Again, we're still within southern Kentucky at this point. They said all of a sudden, it went from lawlessness to an interest in spiritual things. And people, all of a sudden, instead of wanting to know about where you were going to drink. They wanted to know what your spiritual life was like. Of course, you know, you had some outsiders who were still cynical, critical, and one guy from the outside, he was cursing at the, what was going on, making fun of it. So he turns and walks away, and as he's going home, a tree comes down and crushes him and kills him. They carried him home dead. In Shiloh, 1800, again, the Spirit of God moved. One guy, before he fell over, he was so convicted, he ran to get on his horse, and they said as he was mounting his horse, it looked like that somebody had shot him with a pistol. He fell to the ground, off his horse, and he laid there, and then he got up later, praising God. This was crazy, man. This was unbelievable stuff. The watershed, the pinnacle of the great... Campfire revival of the Second Great Awakening, and probably we've never seen anything since, was August of 1801 
Cane Ridge, Bourbon County. Now it's going further north. It's, going, it's in Lexington now. Bourbon County, yes, it's the home of bourbon whiskey. Tells you a lot about this area. Bourbon County, Cane Ridge, 25,000 people show up for six days. Now, this is almost 10% of the entire population west of the Appalachians. This is basically people from all over Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee come for this meeting. Now, they couldn't fit anybody in any building, obviously, at this time. They said it was an unbelievable sea of humanity. Now, you have to picture this. This isn't nice, refined people like us, you know, respectable. These are frontiers people. These are tobacco chewing, bourbon drinking, cussing, trappers. I mean, these are the, I mean, just picture in your mind the group of people that are at this meeting, 25,000 of them. They said it was just unbelievable. They would be gathered in groups, and there was about 100 ministers there, and they would gather in groups of 100 all around, preaching, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God would sweep through and people would just fall over, repenting and crying and confessing and being converted. Nobody knows for certain. Again, these are not historians, right? I mean, you're not going to get a fur trapper, a cowboy, to write what happened. So most of the accounts come from some of the, the ministers. But they believe that there was about 3,000 people converted in those six days. Reverend Stone, a Presbyterian minister, wrote the following. People were struck down powerless and lay as though they were in the agonies of death, pleading for mercy, and after a while they would arise and tell the wonders of redeeming love. And one eyewitness who was there, she wrote the following. The noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. Some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy. A particularly strange sensation came over me. My heart beat tumultuously. My knees trembled, my lips quivered, and I felt as though I must fall to the ground. The scene was indescribable. George Baxter, who was the president of Washington Lee University in Virginia, he was a skeptic when he heard these reports, so he went to Kentucky to see for himself. And he wrote to his friend afterwards, he said, quote, I have never seen such a moral community in all my life. A religious awe seemed to pervade the entire country. My friends, we're talking about Rogue's Harbor. In two years, God had turned this place upside down. He had literally transformed a godless society bent on destruction and lawlessness to a God-fearing place where he was worshipped and praised. Only God, by the power of the Almighty Holy Spirit, could ever accomplish that. And God did it. Desperate affairs require desperate measures. You see, when we think about our nation as a Christian nation, filled with Christian virtue, it is because of the Second Great Awakening. We were transformed by the power of God in 1800-1801. And the awakening carried on for 20 more years. But this was the pinnacle, 1801. It was un 
unbelievable what God accomplished. It absolutely changed our nation and it changed our history. Because of the Second Great Awakening, all of a sudden the abolitionist movement rose up. Slavery had no chance after the Second Great Awakening. The first mission boards, the, the modern Mission Day movement, all occurred because of the Second Great Awakening. The student volunteer movement, our first missionaries to China and India, all came because of the Second Great Awakening. Nobody went overseas before the Second Great Awakening. All our Bible societies rose up because of the Second Great Awakening. And most important is when we went west, we went as a Christian nation. Keep in mind, Thomas Jefferson signs the Louisiana Purchase in 1804. Before that time, we could not go beyond the Mississippi River. When the Louisiana Purchase is signed, and all of a sudden the West opens up, who's going West? Praise God, it's mostly Christians. Now, I understand, you know, from the gold rush in California and in Colorado, there were places that were not the most virtuous. But for the most part, going West, we went as a Christian nation. By 1860, there were 160 colleges that were formed in the Midwest, and 144 of those were formed by Christian evangelists as Christian colleges. Without that great awakening, we are a completely different nation. Here's my question this morning. Are we content with America the way it is now? You know, the answer to the societal problems that we see will never be found in politics. We've tried that. It doesn't work. It's only going to be found in the power of the Almighty God and the church rising up and taking the promises of God to heart and united extraordinary prayer. You know, we, none of us here are happy about the morality of our country or the gun violence or the stories of opiate use and senseless deaths of our teenagers and millennials. But, truthfully, is our back against the wall? Because the reality is, for most of us, we live in rather comfortable safety don't we? We have law enforcement around us. We don't have to fear going out at night of assault. We don't witness robberies or rape like they did in the 1790s. Yes, we know of drunkenness, but for the most part, it's not around us. So we're comfortable. When we get to the point of desperation, when we get to the point of fearing for our safety, when we get to the point where we can't even meet, I believe then desperate affairs will require desperate measures. And we will pray. But I'm begging you to consider praying now. I'm begging you to not wait until that time, but to rise up at the church of God and say, we're not satisfied. 
We desperately want God to show up. We want God to change our nation, our church, our lives. We want to see the power of the risen Christ in revival. You see, in America, I believe prayer is the appetizer, and sometimes it's the dessert. But it's rarely the main meal. And until we make it the main meal, until we say we are going to be unified in extraordinary prayer, praying for revival, we will not see revival. Until the church leaders and the churches come together and say we will make prayer the main course, we will not see revival. The Bible tells us this and history tells us this. God brings revival when his people pray in extraordinary ways, unified for revival. George Otis, the famous missiologist, said the following, true spiritual revival is like a seething lava flow. It takes time to reach its designation, but when it does, its intense heat and formidable power alters everything in its path. It is the full measure of God's kingdom on earth. No spectacle is more glorious or terrifying. I think most of you can recognize what this is. It's a bag of pop. Now, is this popcorn? No, it's the kernels, right? Right? What do you do to make popcorn? You stick it in the microwave, right? And according to this bag, you stick it in for one minute and 45 seconds. So <clears throat> if I stick it in for, let's say, 15 seconds, do I get one-sixth of a bag of popcorn? No. If I stick it in for 30 seconds, what do I get? Nothing. If I stick it in for a minute, I still don't get anything. What do I need to do to get the bag of popcorn? I keep it in there for one minute and 45 seconds. And what happens? Basically, at one minute and 40 seconds, the bag explodes, right? It all happens at one time. And my friends, that's what it happens with revival. You see, many times we hear messages like this, and we get a little bit fired up and excited, and so we start praying for revival. And we give it about five seconds worth. But we don't get to the point of the North Carolina Covenant where we say, we are going to pray for revival until it comes or we die. And that's what they did. We don't stick it in and turn that microwave on the full strength, the full time, and say, you know what? We're going to keep it in there until that bag produces popcorn. We're, and what God is saying, if you want revival, pray until it comes. Get hold of it. Don't let go of it. Ride it out. Focus on it. And pray until revival comes or you die. I believe God will send revival. If we can get the churches united, the leaders united, and as the American Christian, pray for revival, I believe God's word is true. And history tells me it's true. He will change our nation. About a month ago, I was over at the river, and I was praying, and all of a sudden I got a vivid picture from God of something I needed to confess. I thought, oh. And so that was Wednesday night, and I was thinking, I was thinking about it Thursday, thinking about it Friday, getting convicted about it Saturday. So finally, on Sunday morning, I come in and I said, okay, I'm going to 
hold myself accountable to one of the elders. So I come in Sunday morning, and again, the first person I see is one of the elders. So I said, look, you've got to hold me accountable to this, right? I feel this is what God did. I come into the church that morning, first service, first song. I, the words go up. You know what I see? As your witness, looking at you, I look at that screen, I saw Jesus. I saw the face of Jesus smiling at me. That's what I saw. Just like I'm looking at you, there was Jesus looking at me with a smile on his face. That's never happened to me before in my entire life. But God was saying, when you repent, you take me seriously, you humble yourself, I will show up. I am alive. I am here. I want to do great and mighty things in your midst. But it's up to us to repent. It's up to us to lay aside the things that burden us and to, and to focus on God's purpose. God wants to work in our midst. He wants to bring about revival. He wants to do great and mighty things. He is the Lord Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You know, God gave us his promise. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. God is saying, come and pray for revival. Make prayer the main dish. Focus on it and pray until I come. And I will come because I am faithful to my promises. Our nation has seen four great revivals that has changed the face of this country. We would not be who we are without those revivals. I am praying that in my lifetime, we will see the fifth. We will see the fifth great revival. But it's up to us. It's up to us as Christians of our country to come together as one, to lay hold of it, not let go, and pray it through until God comes. It's heavy on my heart. I hope it's heavy on your heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your word. And we are so grateful for the testimony of the Christians that have gone before us. Their faithfulness, their perseverance, their persistence, their determination. Lord, we come and we confess, O oh Lord, that often we are busy with things that really don't matter. We're preoccupied so often with the material. But, oh Lord, we come and we confess, Lord, that we need you. We need your presence and your power. Only you can transform this nation. Only you can work and bring about revival. It can't be manufactured by man. 
No program can transform a nation. Lord, we call upon you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will do a work in our lives, that we will be a people of prayer, a people who are determined to pray, to see your power and your might in our midst. Lord, work in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.